Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seafoot is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning, helping to make sense of money. And welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. Episode 51 of Secure the Insecure. We've made it past the 50 mark. Thank you so much for staying on this journey with me. I really appreciate it. What I also really appreciate is your reviews. Please do help spread the word about Secure the Insecure for the next 50 episodes. Please share it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you do it. But also what I need you to do is go on the podcast app, go to the review section on the podcast, write a review and give it a five-star rating. It really does help. Now I want to talk to you about this week's guest. I want to put out some facts for you. This week's guest is Natalie Queros. In nine minutes, she was stabbed 24 times. The knife missed her baby by two millimetres. Natalie was eight months pregnant. She was stabbed by the man she loved. This is a shocking story. Natalie's documented it in her book, Still Standing. I wanted to bring Natalie on the podcast this week because I wanted you to hear her story, but also hear just because you've gone through something bad, it doesn't mean you can't pick yourself up and do something good. Natalie has been doing some amazing things for the Midlands Air Ambulance Charity ever since. And I want to put it out there already that what she's doing is incredible, but they also do need your help. Midlandsairambulance.com forward slash donate now if you want to donate to a charity after what you've heard by Natalie's testament. She's an amazing person and I'm so glad she agreed to join me on the podcast this week. So without further ado, hello, Natalie. Hello, Johnny. Oh, thank you for that introduction. Well, it's true. You are an inspiration and you've not just gone through something that I can't even comprehend you've picked yourself up and you're doing something for everyone else again now i think it was a case of i i felt i just had to because um i mean if i if i go back to that point which was four and a half years ago i i went from what was a really happy bubble so for everyone listening there was absolutely no warning signs that i could ever be in any danger 
that I was subject to any violence. So I was living this happy life with a good job. I had two children already, and I was eight months pregnant with my third baby, which was actually the first baby with my partner at the time, Bobby. And what was an ordinary Friday afternoon, and I'm strolling into the town centre. I was actually on annual leave from my job, about to go on to maternity leave. And I was strolling in to meet him um, to go to the bank, and we were chatting on the phone, and he said he was stuck in traffic. But he wasn't stuck in traffic. He was actually in the town centre already, unbeknownst to me, getting changed into a disguise. He was heavily disguised. And as I approached the town centre, he followed me, and as you quite rightly say, he jumped upon me from behind and pulled me backwards, so I didn't know who was attacking me. Produced a 12-inch carving knife, and before I knew it, I was being stabbed multiple times. Um, and I can't even describe the horror. I can't describe what I felt. I just thought, this isn't my world. This isn't what 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 the heck is happening, and that's the polite version um, of what was going through my head. Um, people did come to try and help. Uh, at one point, they managed to pin the attacker down, but when I broke free and managed to get to my feet because we were all lying on the pavement, um, I unfortunately collapsed and the attacker too broke free and he came after me and the attack continued, hence why it was spread over such a long period of time. Uh, eventually he was arrested at the scene, but my life was hanging completely in the balance. And I just want to pull it out there as well that he was arrested, he has been charged, not just for what he did to you, but to the two guys who helped you as well. So the legal case is over. He is in prison now. And the, 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 this is your testament and there's no other side to it. Because sometimes people can think, well, that's what you think. But actually, it wasn't like that. But you've got the facts. You've got the pictures eventually of what you look like afterwards. And this was a serious case that actually happened to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um it, it went to, well, I say it went to trial. He actually pleaded guilty and he was sentenced on June the 23rd, 2016, which always stuck with me. It was the day us as a country went and voted for Brexit. So a significant day in many ways, shall we say. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he, it, it's all, he is behind bars. He, got, he pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of me. It was a premeditated attack. He'd been thinking about it for a number of weeks, although we were living together happy. Even the night before, he was lying on my lap on the sofa, chatting to the baby bump and acting completely normally, even though he had all the clothes in the disguise, a rucksack which he carried spare clothes with him to the attack under his top, and the knife were all sat in the car, which was parked on the drive, literally outside the window where we were sat on the sofa. So it was so much to take in, so much to take in. And this was a guy who you had known for another another life really this was a chartered friend that went away and came back into your life again so this was your second chance at happiness with him in the first place yeah we'd known each other when we were 15 um well he was a year above me and i was at the girls grammar school and he was at the nearby boys grammar school and my group of girlfriends got friends with him and his mates and some of my friends are even married to his friends that's how the wider circle stayed together even past university so I always knew what my ex-partner, Bobby, was doing, and he'd always remained this very kind man, not a violent character in the slightest. And and this is where, when it was all revealed that it was him, it was so, so difficult, because my, my injuries were exceptionally extensive. It wasn't a random, awful to put it this way, but it wasn't randomly hacking away at me. It was very targeted, and it hit my heart, my 
liver, my lung, my diaphragm, the main artery, my wrist, the uterus, as you mentioned, that it just missing the baby. It's a very targeted, very premeditated, planned out, carefully executed attack. And um, that's when we talk about the Midlands Air Ambulance. When I was being worked on my first aid at the scene, I was, they saw that I was slipping away and I had minutes left to live. So luckily the helicopter from Midlands Air Ambulance Charity came down and instead of trying to drain my lung and everything else that they would normally do in order to stabilise the patient, they literally just put me into the helicopter and flew. And I think I had less than five minutes, I reckon, left to live when we got to the major trauma centre. So I was as close as you can get, as close as you can get. Your daughter Leah survived and she's very healthy and doing well now. Why do you think the bigger world uh, helped save her? Because let's be honest, Leah shouldn't be with us today. And as sad as that is, she shouldn't be with us. That that wound, that stabbing should have gone straight into her and unfortunately given you a you know, a death cot baby. Absolutely. Um, the medics all and, and the, the medics and the police at the scene um, all thought that I I would never survive. And we all took it that the baby, as you say, her, Leah, that Leah had actually passed away. We were, we were convinced because I'd got three stab wounds in my abdomen and um, she wasn't moving. And I'd obviously lost an extensive amount of blood myself. So the chances of her being oxygenated properly through my blood supply was going to be very limited and when they delivered her they did have to resuscitate and it took five minutes to resuscitate her so I was told to expect extensive brain damage because actually she has got damage onto her brain but my word I mean she is an absolute fighter I, whatever it is in in the world whatever if we believe in this whole thing a bigger plan there must be something because I technically should be dead she definitely should be not with us and um, we're both here and we're both still fighting on and she has defied many many odds what does it mean to be a mother to you for the third time with Leah compared to the first time when you had your two previous children from the previous marriage and also what does it mean to you to be alive now yeah when when I first told I I was put into a coma and when I came out of that coma uh, that's when they told me that Leah had survived and and I was bemused and and confused completely as to how she was still here. Then I was petrified, I'll be totally honest, I was absolutely petrified. So that initial excitement was soon replaced by fear because I knew that I was a single mother now with three children, which had never been in my plan, and that I didn't know what her injuries would be. And I was extensively injured and effectively one-handed because my one hand had been so badly damaged. And so it's absolute fear, but then that soon gets replaced with, this is a miracle. You know, this this is incredible. I mean, having any child is a miracle. And I know of many tragic cases where friends of mine have lost children and it's heartbreaking. So any child that we have is a miracle. But um, but we do have a special relationship. Leah and I, I've got, I'm very close to all three of my daughters. Leah's particularly clingy to me, I think, probably, because we do have that extra special bond. Um, and it goes, I, I just believe that we do have to embrace the things that we've got in life, no matter what else is going on, always look to what we have got. And it might, for me at that point, it was just the fact that I was alive, you know, and and then just build upon that. And don't, you know, it, it's very easy to get caught up in the noise and the smaller concerns. 
let's look at what what really really matters oh exactly and leah is four years old now how are you having those conversations with her about what her father had done to you to her because she's obviously too young to start googling it but she's going to get to an age where it's all out there in the public domain your story how do you firstly protect her from it and what does she know thus far Yeah, absolutely. You know, you hit the nail on the head there. Because we live in the digital world, we do. I always knew that she would have to know. I mean, firstly, her two older sisters knew, so I wouldn't ask them to lie to her. But secondly, there's a digital footprint, you know, my my face and name, while I was still in critical care, was all over the internet, all over the newspapers, all our news articles. So I've always had to accept that she's going to have to know the truth. She knows that the day she was born, that mummy was really poorly and that we had to go in a helicopter. She knows that whenever we see a red helicopter, because I do a lot of fundraising, you say for Midlands Air Ambulance, red helicopter is mummy. And mummy went in that helicopter because she was so poorly and that she was in my tummy. She's noticed now my scarring and she's asked about my hands. It's quite distorted. And I did say, well, mummy got cut. Now, those cuts were from a knife. Some people do, you know... Most of us use knives in a good way to eat our dinner and cut food, but some people use knives in a bad way. And somebody used a knife in a bad way on mummy. Um, she knows that I know the person who did it, but she doesn't know. I just said I knew the person, but they were in disguise, and mummy didn't know it was them at the time. But we haven't gone to the final part yet. Um, really, you mentioned about Still Standing, my book earlier. On the cover of Still Standing, as you know, is a photo of me and Leah. And it's a photo taken when she's two months old. She knows that that's her. She will see my book, and we've seen it really in bookshops, and she'll actually go, oh, that's mummy and me, mummy and me. So it, <laughs> she recognises that, that a lot has gone on, but she doesn't know yet who it was, but she will know at some point. I've had a lot of child psychologists discuss it with me because it's, it's just such a horrific thing to tell any child. There's no right time for them to know, but you don't want to leave it that it's too late, that they firstly find out from another source. Secondly, that an age where they overhear a conversation. And also the other way that you tell them too early and they can't comprehend what happens because the psychological side of that for her will be a lot more damaging than anything else she's actually been through to comprehend and contextualise. My father did this to the woman that he was supposed to love, firstly, when I'm learning about love and learning about relationships. Secondly, this is my father who has done this to my mother, who means everything to me. And thirdly, my father's done this to me. Yes. I mean, that's it. For any child who's got to take on board that essentially the day they were born, you know, their parent tried to murder them and their mother, you know, and... um, like I say, I've taken extensive advice. A lot of advice is that she gets told at a younger age, for what you just said quite rightly, one, because I don't want somebody to drop it out or she overhears something. Secondly, um, it, it, as awful as this sounds, and it is horrific, and it absolutely does break my heart, genuinely, is the thought that that's got to be her normality. And if you tell her younger, it becomes her normality. And I know it's a horrible, horrible normality to have, but if you tell her older, at an older age, then, well, you can imagine telling a 10-year-old, a teenager, oh, by the way, you know, just in case you, you look it up, this is what happened. Um, it, it would break their world more. You almost need it to be part of their world from quite a young age. 
have you thought about when you're going to do this? Because it's one of those things that you're going to have to build it up. And I don't want to say you're going to put it in your calendar or in your diary and, you know, mark it as, you know, one month to go. But it's such a big thing for you to do and such a big conversation. Have you thought about when you're going to do it and how you're going to do it? Yeah. Um, uh, it's something in some ways I suppose I'd put off. That's why she, she knows all these little bits. Um, I'm going to be taking, I'm going to be meeting soon with a, another child psychologist to get some real supportive work with her to actually discuss it because the only way for her to do this will be with a child psychologist who deals with trauma and deals with traumatic events. And um, my older two children both saw a child psychologist who was fantastic. And um, I'll be using her advice and guidance. And I've already followed some of that. It's, it's about doing it at the moment. The advice is to do it's a narrative, a bit of a storytelling of this happened and, you know, sort of, but always emphasising the safety. We are safe now. We are protected. You know, she, she knows she's loved, but repeating that message all the time. You are loved. You are secure. You are safe. And making sure that that message is firmly, firmly in her mind. It's so important to do that and to seek help because there's only so much as a mother that you can do for your children to protect them. It's so important that you seek help if you've got those PTSD symptoms or you're about oh, to reveal true. something because otherwise you're taking such a weight on, not just for yourself, but for your children as well. Yeah, and it's amazing how many people, and I mean, people listening to this, you know, there's so many people who experience trauma. So many people who experience trauma. You don't have to have anything you know, dramatic, as dramatic as what happened to myself. You know, trauma can come from all sorts of different sources. And I deal now, um, as well as my fundraising side, I do a lot of work with young people. And I talk about knife crime. And I have my own community interest company, which is like a not-for-profit social enterprise, where I go and talk to young people about what it's like to be a stab victim to try and help get them to really understand and empower them to make the choice not to carry a knife. And... So many of the young people that I deal with, you, you listen to the things that they've dealt with already, you know, teenagers who have witnessed horrific domestic violence, for example. And so many people carry trauma, but then don't get help or don't get support or are unable to get support or don't know where to go. But I, I urge anybody, please, 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 if there's anything that's happened in your life, get support, seek therapy. It is not weak. I have had three and a half years with a clinical psychologist. I never thought that I would be the type of person in the stereotype of it. Oh, I was never that type of person. It has saved my life, genuinely saved my life. It's really helped. We know that knife crime is on the rise. What would you say to those kids who are still carrying, out, carrying knives for their own safety? Because yes, it's for their own safety, but that isn't the answer. No, I mean, the thing is, is, Carrying a knife, you're far more likely to get stabbed yourself. The statistics all show that, you know, because you'll either reveal the knife and somebody else will then pull one on yourself because you've revealed it, or they'll disarm you and use your own knife against you. Um, the thing I say to young people is, it was touch and go for me. And there's plenty of young people who die from just a single stab wound. And, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of factors that played into how I'm still here now. Even as the survivor of the stabbing, I, I live with some very serious long-term health implications. One, I could say, is my left hand being pretty much useless. I have a lot of internal scarring, which causes issues as well. So I try to say to them, look at other ways. Life is difficult enough, I believe, for a young person. There's so many things they have to navigate nowadays. 
let's not make it any harder by the fact that every time you step out the door, you're at risk of having a knife put into you or you're at risk that you'll lose your rag, you will see red, you happen to have a knife on you and you go and stick it in somebody and without any thought, you're suddenly a murderer because that's what you'll be classed as. If you kill somebody with a knife, even if you've carried that knife because you thought it was for your own self-defence, you will become a murderer. And sometimes when I've spoken to young people who've been miscarrying knives, I've said, but do you want to be a murderer? And they'll look at me like aghast, like, no, no, what are you talking about? And, but that's what you'll be. If you use that and that person dies, you will be a murderer. That's your life ruined. Is anyone worth that? What's your relationship with knives now? Because you obviously saw that knife, that first stab wound before, obviously it knocked you out. Are you able to use a knife even when it comes to cooking, eating, using it to open something, or sharp objects are banned in your house? Yeah, it's actually a really great question. You're the first person to ask ask me that, genuinely, because um, I'm, I'm fine with them at home. Um I, I get twitchy, I'll be honest, but I am fine with them at home. Um, but weirdly, I was at um, a Brazilian restaurant um, before we got COVID lockdown. And I don't know if you've ever gone to a Brazilian restaurant where they carve the meat at the table. They bring the meat on a long skewer at the table. And I could literally feel my palms sweating because obviously somebody at the table and they're using this long knife and they're carving it and they're right next to me. And I was sort of slowly moving away and my hands start sweating. You know, I can feel my heart racing and my stomach clenching. And, um, I mean, my PTSD will stay with me. My post-traumatic stress will stay with me for life. I've had extensive therapy for it, but there are still triggers to that. I, I mean, I have to see images of knives when I do my work with young people with knife crime, but I still find it exceptionally difficult to see. I find it really difficult when on the news, for example, they might show a knife that's been used I do find myself flinching. I can't watch a horror movie anymore. I used to be a great horror movie fanatic. I actually can't watch that now because if they pull a knife to use it, I, I just can't can't watch. How connected to your story are you now? Have you got to that point of being desensitised that you know it happened to you, but now you're giving these talks that it's like it's happened to someone else, although you've got the physical scars, or are you still living this story four years on? There's times I can still live it. There's a there's a way of um, that I've developed into a script. I know that sounds awful. But, no, it sounds um, completely right. You take yourself a step away and look yeah. at it as if it's someone else. Because the only way I can talk about it, sometimes I talk about it and I talk about the details of the attack. So when I speak to young people, they live through the attack with me. So I walk them through it because I think it's important for them to really understand firsthand what it's like. And people say to me, how, how do you do that? How do you do that? And I say, because I know there's a way that I say it. There's a way that I talk about it. But then sometimes if I get asked a question by a young person that's like curveball for me, I can sometimes catch me, especially really talking, I suppose, about my kids. You know, and I'll suddenly find myself, my, my voice will catch, or, and then I sort of just have to take a breath and go, I'm sorry, because that's gone off script. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's a way, I think... Because I wrote the book, so that was obviously a lot of processing because I sat there for months and months. And when I wrote the book, I was sat at my, um, I've got an iMac, uh, quite an old iMac, and I just sat there typing away with tears streaming down my face. Um, so it's hard going. And I, like I say, I, I talk about it in a certain way. So in that way, I can box it up. Um, but then a flashback can come back and throw me off, set, you know, off course for a while, but then I get back on track. Is there anything you put in your book 
that you wish you hadn't put? It's called Still Standing. Is there anything in there that you wish you hadn't put in the book, though? Um, no, I'm glad I was as honest as I was. I think if anyone reads the book, um, there, there have been people who have said to me, crikey, I didn't expect you. I, mean, I don't want to do it for people who read it. Please do read it, please. <laughs> but um, it, I was really honest. I mean, I know yourself has read the book. I was very honest about my feelings and the confusion that my head went through for a long time after. Because you still loved him. You still begged and begged and begged to want to see him in prison. And the amount of hoops you had to try and get through and the questions and what you had to do to even get a meeting with him was just even in itself a crime. Well, I mean, it was really hard. Actually, the weird thing about those seeing him, that wasn't even on the love side that was my determination right from the beginning that I wanted him to answer to my face why he did it um you know it was the the most important thing it wasn't even because I was desperate to see him that way it's because I was actually desperate well desperate. I was determined to make him face me and I was determined he was going to explain to my face directly what the hell happened you know why what how how did he even come to this conclusion that he, he was going to murder me, you know, after there was no warning sign. But um, but I was in turmoil, yeah, for months and months after the attack of that. I still, because it, it was a complete bereavement. You've got to remember, I knew this man for 25 years, and for 25 years he'd never been violent. So for, I that morning, Bobby went to work and never came home. Now, also, there was this man on the hill. And because I'd blocked out so much who it was on the hill... It was really hard for me to put my head together with the man I'd known 25 years who'd never been violent with the man who'd attacked me. And it took a long time for my head to adjust to that because I was grieving the loss of this man I'd known for a long time and the man who I loved, you know, the man I was, you know, having a baby with, who I was setting up home with, you know, who I'd got this whole future planned with. So I was grieving the loss of that. And I went through the whole grief cycle, like completely went through the grief cycle, and um, it was really through all my therapy and facing him that it helped me to connect it all properly together in my head, which helped me to move on properly. The book's called, in the word of Alton John, Still Standing. What does it mean to you today, Natalie Crowell, to still stand? <laughs> well, as you say, it is actually from the words of um, the great Sir Elton John, because in the song he actually says, I'm still standing better than I ever did, feeling like a true survivor. Oh, act like a true survivor, but feeling like a little kid. And that's kind of how it is. I think, do you know what? I am still here. I am still, you know, fighting on, thriving, making something different. At times I do still feel like a kid because it's a whole new world to me. But um, I feel I'm living now a far more genuine life because I'm actually being honest about what I want to do. And I'm being probably more me. I think for many years I was working in the pharmaceutical industry. I was being this very corporate professional with a really well-paid job, but actually I wasn't fulfilling myself for what I actually wanted to do. And even though I earn far, far less money nowadays, like significantly less, I feel I'm actually making a positive difference. I hope I am with the young people I speak to. And that fulfills me far more than anything else. And that's the thing. If it wasn't for the horrific, horrific thing you've gone through, you would never have known what the Midlands Air Ambulance is. You would never have known there was a charity associated with it and gone to their gala dinners. What you've done for the Midlands Air Ambulance charity over the past three years, putting them on the map, getting their name out there, has been so invaluable and so important. And you've 
had to kind of go through the bad to get to the good like you said you found your sense of belonging now that money isn't everything and obviously we know Bobby had a lot of money problems in the first place but this is much more important than money this is you making a difference to the world and if you hadn't gone through what happened you wouldn't have been able to do this now no absolutely not I mean you know I look at it as you say Bobby had huge money problems that I didn't even know about and that was all part as well of the whole scenario that was going on but luckily I was always very financially secure so this is kind of the first time I've ever put myself out there of okay I've got to now survive on a lot less money but you know what even that I'm making it work if you told me four and a half five years ago you know you're going to be doing this and this is going to be the sort of money you're going to be taking home I'd have gone no way not a chance but you do just we can it's amazing what we can make work when we try and we make some changes and make some adaptions and um and like I said, I just feel I'm being far more genuine nowadays and living a far more genuine life than maybe that corporate life that I was living before. And it was a good life. The world in pharmaceuticals, I had some fantastic colleagues. I've worked to very, you know, good, high-profile companies. But And I wish all of them well and success, but it just wasn't me. Final words from you, Natalie Crowells. What, how do you want your story to live on? Where how do you want people to look at you now? I just want people to see that, as I explained in the book and in the stories, that I hit a very dark and low place. And I had to put on a charade to start with. I put on a face because I needed to, to make sure that my kids could see that their mum was there. But I was still fighting a lot of dark demons in my head because I at times wished I hadn't survived. But even in that low place, I've managed to build back up, stand on my own two feet, get back, find out what it is that I really wanted to do. And I want people to always just look at, especially at the moment, we're going through COVID and it's a complete roller coaster. As we say, the COVID coaster is up and down. And it's tough times at the moment. But even when it is really tough and dark places, genuinely, we can get back and we can lead a better life. And sometimes, actually, from the hardest times, we can discover the most amazing things afterwards, as you rightly say, that's how I found Wow, what an amazing woman Natalie Crowell was. Is. Her book, Still Standing, is out to buy now. The charity midlandsairambulance.com forward slash donate now is available for you to donate if you have liked what you've heard on this podcast. Please do buy Natalie's book. It is so important that you read it. It's a hard read at times, I'm not going to lie to you. There are times I threw the book across the room. There are times I cried. There are times I smiled as well. Natalie is an asset What she's doing for the West Midlands Air Ambulance Service is incredible. And to tell her story and to carry on making a difference, it's very easy if you go through something bad that you go, okay, well, this has happened to me. I don't ever want to get up again. But she still wants to make a difference. She's still putting her voice and her name out there to try and make a change to the way that we live in society today. Natalie Crowell's still standing. Please do go and buy it. You've been listening to Security and Security with me, Johnny Seifert. If you've liked what you heard, please, again, like the podcast, give it a five-star rating and leave a review. I can't make this podcast successful without your help. And remember, it's okay to not be okay. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.